1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, and today we're very fortunate to be joined by Mark Solovey, professor at the University of Toronto's Institute for the History and Philosophy of Science and Technology. Professor Solovey's research focuses on the development of the social sciences in the United States, and especially the controversies regarding the scientific identity of the social sciences, private and public funding, and public policy implications of social science expertise. He has written and co-edited a number of books, including Social Science for What? Battles Over Public Funding for the Other Sciences, at the National Science Foundation, which was published in 2020 by MIT Press and is available open access on the MIT Press website. Today, we wanna discuss social science for what, along with some of Solovey's other important work concerning the social sciences and the Cold War in this and another episode. I think you'll be quite interested in his well-researched arguments and perspectives, which have made him one of the world's leading experts on the recent history of the social sciences. Over the course of two podcasts, our discussion will reflect on current policy issues concerning their scientific identity, public funding, and social relevance, immersed as we appear to be in a retroversion neo-Cold War. Professor Solovey, Mark, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today about your writing and research.
2: Keith. Thanks so much for reaching out to me. Um, my book, Social Science for What, has received a number of nice reviews and scholarly journals, but this just the first interview or podcast I'm doing about it. So um, I'm really excited about that. It's a real honor.
1: Great. Hey, thanks. Um, as a starting point, I want to ask you about your teaching and research through the Institute. Can you share a bit about the Institute and its overall mission as a platform for supporting your own efforts?
2: yeah sure i'll be happy to keith um i arrived at the university of toronto in back in the fall of 2006 and the institute uh, functions like a department for the history and philosophy of science and technology is one of the oldest of its type one of the largest and i if i don't say it, it's not too modest to say it, i think it's one of the best in the world my colleagues and our students um, do philosophy of science and technology history of science and technology and uh, there is an opportunity, and some people pursue um, integrated history and philosophy of science and technology, which isn't, it's not easy to do and for uh, the challenges, but it's all, there are not many places in the world where one can do that. And for me, this has really been an excellent fit. I went to the University of Wisconsin for my grad studies, where I focused on history of science, but also there was a philosophy of science component, and I had done a philosophy minor in college, and I also married a Historian and Philosopher of Science, uh, Marga, who's also my colleague at at the Institute, and I'm not going to pretend I do philosophy. My work is historical. That's obvious. Anybody who reads it, but it is informed by philosophical issues about, well, about the nature and the value of science, including the social sciences and where the social sciences fit in the larger world of science. And fortunately, the Institute has been very supportive of me. I should mention, I was actually hired as a historian of social science, which is very unusual. I don't know if there's any other position in Canada, North America, or anywhere else where someone was hired at, not, let's say, as a historian of science, focusing on the 20th century, who happens to work on the social sciences, but as a historian of social sciences. So this is very rare, and I'm very happy to have this position.
1: Interesting. Um, Can you tell us a, a bit about the genesis of social science for what? And trace its relationship to your other books, uh, such as Shaky Foundations, um, as well as your Cold War Science uh, work. Um, your your edited books are, are are quite engaging as well.
2: Thanks. Um, well, gee, the Genesis, uh, I guess that suggests a long time ago. And um, I guess my you know my recent book does in some ways you can find kernels of it back in my dissertation from a few decades ago, but more. Close to the present, um, as you mentioned, I published a book in 2013 called Shaky Foundations. And the full title uh, after the colon is The Politics, Patronage, Social Science Nexus in Cold War America. And let me just mention the central argument there quickly because, uh, you know, this new book does grow out of that work. So the central argument is that after World War II from the late 40s to early or mid 60s, there was... A largely new patronage system, right, system for funding social science research that emerged outside of the universities. And I, my, that book focused on military as an important patron, the National Science Foundation and the Ford Foundation. And even though there were a lot of differences among these different, well, different types of patrons, um, they settled on two common commitments in terms of how they understood the nature of the social sciences and how the social sciences would be valuable. And uh, one of them, uh, for a shorthand, I called scientism, which I'll explain a little later in this interview. And the second one was social engineering. There were always critics of funding according to this model rooted in scientism and social engineering. And they became especially fierce in the 1960s. This was part of wider uh, challenges in U.S. society to the so-called establishment. And... In that context, um, there were deep questions raised about the influence of patrons on social science, including the ones I, I've studied in shaky foundations, the military, NSF and Ford Foundation. Um, and this was also related to deep questions about the nature and social value of the social sciences themselves. Well, in 2014, after my book was published, I thought I was done with at least the story of social science at the National Science Foundation. But at the time, there were mounting conservative attacks on NSF social science funding, namely from Republicans. And I decided it seemed too, too important a story to leave aside. And I I wanted to take the story that I ended in the 1960s and safety foundations and develop it further and trace it basically down to the present. So um, I had done a lot of research and I thought, okay, I would write a short book, maybe 40,000 words. It would take me a year. Well, in retrospect, that's pretty funny if you've read my book, because it's more than 100,000 words it took me about five years. Anyway, just let me take a moment to thank my wonderful editor at MIT Press, Katie Halka and her team, and for making available an open access version. That's uh, been a great way to make my vi- book more visible and accessible to a wide range of
1: readers. That's great. The open access uh, angle really is is something especially Uh, These days with what's going on with the uh, Internet Archive and and glad you picked that up uh, from the 60s on uh, because um, it's an interesting follow up to to shaky foundations. One of your lead in quotes uh, for the introduction to social science for what is attributed to the National Science Foundation's head of social sciences policies and programs in the mid 1950s. Uh, the sociologist, uh, Harry Alpert, do, do you mind reading it for us?
2: Well, no, not at all. OK, let's see. Here it is. Um, the social sciences have prospered best in the federal government where they have been included under umbrella classifications of the scientific disciplines. In close company with scientific areas which enjoy the prestige and status of biological or physical sciences, the social sciences have enjoyed a protection and nourishment which they normally do not have when they are identified as such and stand exposed, naked and alone. Yeah, so that was Albert's quote. And uh, first, let me, a quick comment. Albert has been, I think, unfairly overlooked in the history of the social sciences and even in the history of sociology, his discipline. I mean, it's true, he, he didn't produce any great sociological theory, but he was enormously important at the National Science Foundation, which, Uh, I hope I make my case in my books that this has been enormously important for the social sciences themselves. It was Alpert who established the framework for a viable funding strategy at the agency under very difficult conditions and which has had a very long term impact. And his quote points to a basic truth about the history of the social science in the federal government, which is that their status has been very uh, problematic. And one of the ways of protecting them from all sorts of criticisms has been to place them under the wider scientific umbrella where the natural sciences, the physical and biological sciences are taken to be the um, assumed leaders. And because of the problematic status of the social sciences, this has always created seriously worries for agency leaders because they worry criticism of social science will lead to criticism of the agency, which threatens its reputation and its budgets so the scientific umbrella has been a widespread strategy for protecting the social sciences and that's albert's point and i i think it's a very important point
1: yeah th- thanks for for sharing that it also serves though as, as an effective lead-in for your uh, i guess i call it your call to action and, and as you put it and i quote for fresh thinking about the need for a new uh social science agency uh, National Social Science Foundation. Can can you provide listeners with a lay of the land? Hey, what are the big stakes here?
2: Well, I do think the stakes are big, and, and I hope that's clear as uh, as we make it through some of the other issues um, that we'll be discussing. So first, let me I'll just go through this very quickly right now. So there was a National Social Science Foundation proposal put forth in the 1960s by a U.S. Senator, Fred Harris. He believed, and Other people who supported his proposal believe that federal agencies, including the NSF, weren't treating the social sciences well. They didn't have enough funding, representation, influence, and other things. I'll say more about Harris's proposal later. But that proposal failed by the late 1960s, early 70s, and then it faded quickly from view. But I think the problems that he and other people who supported his proposal identified Remained. As a matter of fact, I argue that they be intensified in the latter part of the 20th century and they continue today. So my proposal is really straightforward, if somewhat ambitious, which is to revive the idea and hopefully leading to a new uh, agency in the federal government. Um, You know, the social sciences study so many important topics, Keith, and um, I don't know, the economy, politics, war peace, um, social identities, education, crime, unemployment, mental health, um, you know, you can go on and on. Um, It's really important that they're adequately funded. And I think the U.S. government could be doing a much better job. So the point of um, reviving the National Social Science Foundation idea is to see how we could strengthen the social sciences, enhance their value to contribute to national well-being more effectively and more generally human welfare. So, Keith, and I I hope the listeners out there, um, and I hope there are many social scientists out there, will agree with me that these are pretty big stakes.
1: Yeah, thanks for that. I think that well supports uh, your call to action. Chapter one uh, is foundational uh, to understanding all the challenges that the social sciences uh, were confronted with, as you've mentioned, from their identity crisis as science's their practical value and standing in scientific affairs overall. These issues all emerged in the partisan debates over proposals to establish the NSF. Your book helps fill an important research gap in this area. Rather than focus solely on the complexities involved from the vantage point of a single discipline such as economics or political science, you also examine what the NSF debate represented for social science writ large. As you point out, Vannevar Bush and his 1945 policy report delivered to President Truman uh, was entitled Science, the Endless Frontier. It figures prominently in what becomes the partisan nature of the NSF debate. What should we know about Vannevar Bush and his policy report? And why is it significant for the social sciences?
2: Yeah, well, there is a lot to say here. Let me, um, let's see, I'll try to boil it down to the essentials. First, uh, many listeners may know that science, the end this frontier was, is a landmark policy document in U.S. The history of the federal government, U.S. science, um, U.S. science policy. Um, it's still referred to, you know, um, frequently um, today in scholarly writings and every time like there's another 10 year passes, there's another anniversary issue or there's another uh, journal devoted to reflecting on and supporting. So it's really an enormously important document. It was commissioned originally by uh, Franklin Roosevelt when he was president, but Roosevelt died in office. So Bush delivered his report to Roosevelt's successor, President Truman. And that was in the summer of 1945. Bush himself was enormously important. He was an electrical engineer and key, one of the top uh, science policy advisors in the federal government during World War II. And science day on this frontier is interesting for many reasons. But I'll just focus on what's most important for our story here. Um, It called for a large, comprehensive new science agency to be established. But as for the social sciences, uh, Bush explicitly said, well, we haven't really studied them. Their needs are unknown so let's leave them aside for now and you know let's get the new agency established and then whether it should include the social sciences can be considered later now that really looks if you just look at it it looks like it's sort of an offhand comment like you know an afterthought they finished the study and they don't know what to do with the social sciences but um there's a revealing backstory to that so very quickly bush had shaped roosevelt's original request for uh the, a policy report and, and Bush left out the social sciences in that request, and we know from other documents that Bush actually distrusted the social science. It would be unfair. Okay, it would be unfair to say he was like completely anti-social science, but he was a moderate conservative for his day, and he was critical of the social science role in various liberal reform efforts, including the New Deal. Also, Bush was a, you know, leading member of the nation's scientific and engineering elite. He was a member, for example, of the National Academy of Sciences. And in that context, the social sciences had long been problematic. So, the suggestion in Science: The Endless Frontier that the nation could wait and consider the social sciences later was really not an afterthought. That was a calculated decision, um, and it was, the decision was to place the social sciences on the sideline. And this is really a crucial junction in American science and federal science policies, the end of World War II. and the nation is trying to figure out, you know, given the enormous role of science and uh technology in World War II, what should be done going forward. And Bush is saying, Well, let's leave the social sciences aside and think and worry about them later.
1: It's an interesting juxtaposition, all things considered, and, and let's not get sidetracked on that. So Bush is a, a key figure here and consults with Washington Democratic Senator Warren Magnuson, who introduces a Senate Bill 1285 to create a science agency with Bush's policy report as a blueprint. About the same time, a New Deal Democrat from West Virginia, Harley Kilgore, introduces Senate Bill 1297, which conflicts with the Magnuson bill in terms of leadership, mandate and scope of the proposed agency, as you wrote. Can you unpack some of the partisan debate and issues involved in the competing Senate bills?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, That's right. There were two competing bills presented in the summer of 1945, and right from the beginning, there was partisan conflict, I should say, and the social sciences didn't cause the partisan conflict. It was there from the beginning. Mike right, Kilgore is a close ally of Truman, he's trying to promote a left liberal vision for US science policy in the post-war period. Magnussen's a Democrat, but he's more conservative especially on science policy issues and he's following Bush's lead. And as you mentioned there are a number of controversial issues about the leadership scope and aims and the social science has become one of the let's say handful maybe top 5 issues of contention. The debate itself which starts in the and 45 carries on over five years. Uh, uh, Listeners should know this. that There was a long drawn out uh, discussions in Congress and in the national media. Um, There are about 20 or more bills introduced before the 1950 NS Act is actually passed, which creates the National Science Foundation. I, I should also mention that one of the consequences of this drawn out debate is that by the time NSF gets established, other agencies, especially the military branches, have moved very strongly into the support of science and technology. So NSF it actually when it's created is actually sort of small and is doesn't look a lot like the large centerpiece co- and comprehensive agency that Bush envisioned. Still, NSF ends up becoming a major civilian science agency. So the question is: okay, where how do the social sciences fit in the partisan debate and ways that end up shaping their position in the science agency? Well, as I mentioned, science and the endless frontier had sidelined the social sciences. So did Magnuson, who creates a piece of legislation based on Bush's suggestion. Kilgore's bill, however, mentioned economic, industrial, and industrial studies. So not the social sciences in general, but clearly is interested in having the new agency work in that area. And then, in a major development in September of 1945, Truman. Uh, presents an address to Congress about reconversion from wartime to peacetime, and he specifically recommends creating a science agency that will include the social sciences. So again, this is placing the social sciences, you know, smack dab in the center of a partisan conflict. And as one commentator put it, and correctly at the time, the social sciences had been introduced uh, by Truman with quote a bang. In general, what these early developments would do is that they would tend to lead uh, to a situation where debate over social science was tended to divide on partisan lines, tended to be supported by liberals, maybe mainly liberal Democrats, although a few moderate Republicans supported them. And it was attacked largely by conservatives, especially Republicans and some of the more
1: conservative um, Democrats. Good stuff. Thanks a lot for the legislative history there. Many listeners in the States will be familiar with the Social Science Research Council, which was uh, founded in 1923. How does the council figure into the debate and dialogue surrounding the proposed establishment of the NSF? Your archival research shed light on the council's institutional thinking. Can you share its relevance to President Truman's speech in 1945?
2: Yeah, the council is enormously important in this episode. So here's what happened. Um, Following Truman's address, Senator Kilgore sent a letter to the council, soliciting the council's view about the social sciences and asking the council to send representatives to testify at upcoming science policy hearings in the fall. So the question was, what did social scientists and what did the council think about this? Well, initially, and here's the archival research is clear on this. Initially, there were considerable worries about being included, you might ask why. Well, uh, you know, the concern was that this would be a new federal agency and extensive federal funding might lead to the political control and corruption of social science research, an issue that is, is perpetually with us and involves not just the social sciences, but the sciences. And we see it in the present day issues about global warming or vaccines. One of the concerns is, well, who is funding the research and how might that funding be corrupting the research? So, Those concerns were there back in the council's considerations, but not surprisingly, social scientists were also really worried about being excluded from this major new science agency and the pro-inclusion view quickly became dominant, especially after Truman's address to Congress at the, Congressional hearings in 1945, the Council said a handful of scholars and these were major scholars of the day. It's really important. These were not just minor characters. Uh, The main figure representing the Council's view was the economist Wesley Mitchell. There was also the sociologist William Ogburn, the psychologist Robert Yerkes. These are, you know, towering figures in the first half of the 20th century for the social sciences and their case was that um, social science should be included because social science is a legitimate part of science. This goes back to an idea that there's a unified scientific enterprise. The different sciences have their own subject matters, but otherwise they're fundamentally similar, let's say, at the levels of the methods of study. They all aim to be objective, unbiased, apolitical. I mean, you, you know, we're all familiar with these ideas, I think. And also then that you know, once they discover objective knowledge that turns out to have practically useful implications. Now, this view had far reaching implications, I think many of our listeners will probably uh, realize. And the reason is because um, there was and still is, uh, you know, a debate raging more strongly at some moments than others. Oh, a debate over the nature of purposes of the social sciences many people then and now believe and i think with some reason that in some ways there are important differences between the social and natural sciences major people put forth this view charles beard john dewey robert lind and they said well you know unlike uh, the view we have of the natural sciences social sciences are often engaged with value adjustments ethics morality political philosophy um, and that's fine uh, according to this view. in addition to understand people in society you need to interpret and and interpret meaning something very specific here you need to sort of understand the thoughts and the feelings and the purposes people have which is very different from atoms or chemicals in a test tube presumably they don't have thoughts feelings and purposes so so anyway there's this like big divide in what the social sciences are and hence how they should be funded and how they will become useful and the position put forth by the Council of Social science Representatives, you know, argue that social science is part of a unified enterprise. And I sum up their view uh, under the term scientism. This is just a shorthand for the notion that social sciences are very much like the natural sciences and the natural sciences are more mature, more advanced, and the social sciences will, will progress by becoming more and more like the natural sciences. So, so this is a key term um, used as a shorthand in my
0: book.
1: You know, it's interesting, too, you you think about some of the writing of uh, Lewis A. Coser in sociology, commenting about social conflict and going back to gee, some of the early sociological association meetings, like early 1900s. So, you know, it's not like Vannevar Bush's kind of preoccupation with not including the social sciences it had no merit.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The question about where the social science fit in the scientific enterprise was complicated. Yeah, my point is that uh, Bush is trying to sideline them um, rather than saying, oh, well, you know, sciences are all important and we can all include them in the new science agency. That wouldn't mean social science has to proceed just like the natural sciences. But, you know, he uses this controversy and uh, about the social sciences as a, re- as a reason to try to push them aside.
1: No, and there's this issue about, as you pointed out, about reform, that uh, as okay. if reform was, a, was almost like a direct threat to the system. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, anyways, you, you've talked somewhat about this, and so let's move on to the inclusion of the social sciences uh, in the NSF. And again, that includes their preoccupation with social sciences, as you say, engagement with politics and other matters involving value judgments. And that's, I guess, what we're really talking about there, uh, we, right, which seem to place the social sciences in contrast to the allegedly apolitical and value-neutral natural sciences. For example, a statement from the Union of American Biological Societies, as you pointed out, said that the social sciences should be excluded from the proposed science agency because they imply activities and i quote which are not purely objective and therefore may introduce disharmony through divergence of political viewpoints how did such worries raise this bogeyman of government planning which is kind of underlying all this
2: yeah definitely so this is a crucial issue right Um, I mean, who opposed social sciences and why? And um, just to sum up, you know, uh, what I say in the book, uh, there was a conservative alliance of scientists who supported Bush-inspired legislation. These were mainly natural scientists, medical scientists and engineers, and they were allied with conservative politicians, mainly Republicans and conservative Democrats. And their argument, as we've been alluding to, was that the social sciences are really very different, but they meant this in a also in a derogatory way um to suggest that they're really not scientific they're subjective rather than objective they're it's hard to quantify and experiment and get reliable results so they're more unreliable than the natural sciences there's no universal laws to be discovered and also they're in the social sciences are involved with values and ideology social philosophies and again they're they tend to they tended to uh well, they they meant this in a derogatory way, especially they're involved with leftist philosophies like and programs associated with the New Deal or Marxism, supporting racial equality, you know, social welfare programs, world government. Um, so the bogeyman of you know social science being uh, you know in bed with sort of left leaning agendas and reforms that would lead to government planning was definitely very prominent and uh, you know a major issue in that episode, and you know continues to be an issue all throughout you know, the last well, ever since then for the last uh, what 80 years.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing all that. It's interesting contextual background for understanding uh, the stakes involved, uh, as you discussed earlier, really. Um, before we leave Bush and his Science, the Endless Frontier report, in fairness, um, and as you pointed out, we should note that although he was against inclusion of the social sciences in the original agency. He did leave room, at least, uh, for its possible inclusion later. How did this compromise of sorts ultimately win out?
2: Well, his position went out, that's right. Um, The case against inclusion uh, during the drawn-out debate was countered by a pro-social science case. And this was put forth mainly by an alliance of uh, liberal scientists and politicians. But for complicated reasons, that alliance proved weak. Even the Truman White House, right? Truman had originally introduced that the social sciences with a bang. The Truman White House backed off from that. Kilgore himself compromised with uh, uh those arguing get against, against include including the social sciences. And you know, I think it's fair to say the conservative alliance was merciless in that episode. Portraying social science, not just as, you know, understudied, but as, you know, being filled with dangerous cranks. One person referred to the social scientists as long haired men and short haired women who were messing into people's lives. So the NSF Act, which calls for a new agency to support basic scientific research, training and facilities in the natural sciences, including engineering, never mentions the social sciences. But there, there are passages in that act which refer, which suggest that the agency can also fund other sciences apart from the one specifically mentioned in the, in the in that document so this effectively left the window open for the new agency to consider whether it wanted to fund the social sciences or not
1: how deftly they were able to to attack the idea of uh, including them is is interesting in itself so by 1950 uh the NSF had its enabling legislation <clears throat> can you describe uh, the organizational structure of the nsf and the pivotal role of harry alpert again who, who we talked about earlier with with some emphasis on how he was able to gain approval for at least a limited social science program within the new agency's prevailing basic science ideology and its natural science orientation
2: yeah the organizational structure well it, it left little room for the for the social sciences right there's a director at the top That was a physicist originally, Alan Waterman, uh, and he shared decision making powers with the National Science Board, which had 24 members and included mainly natural scientists, although some other figures below those decision makers were divisions, including two divisions for research, one for mathematical, physical and engineering sciences, the other for biological and medical sciences. So originally there's no place for the social sciences, but the agency uses that power or that phrase the other sciences uh to hire alpert in 1953 to conduct a report and make recommendations about the social sciences now not surprisingly he he's a sociologist right so he ends up making a case that the social sciences should be included but the question is how and Alpert, you know is very savvy and he crafts a cautious strategy Emphasizing, sort of, you know, the science, taking the scientist's position, he starts out by suggesting the agency should support convergent research, convergent between the social and natural sciences, for example, biological anthropology. He recommends that the agency not go near any research on sex, race, religion, or politics, because that would be too controversial. And he suggests that the agency should focus on the hardcore. End of the social research, social science research continuum. The idea is that there's a continuum from soft to hard research, and he recommends that the agency only support hardcore social science. So uh, the leaders of the agency actually approve uh, of these recommendations. So initially there are two convergent programs. Later, those are dropped, and the agency creates disciplinary-based programs for economics, sociology, anthropology and also history and philosophy of science, which I think is interesting. Funding increases slowly, and the status of the social science efforts rises to the point that in 1960, the agency actually creates a division of social science to go along with those other two divisions I mentioned. In 1958, Albert leaves the agency. Um, Social science gets a new leader, Henry Rican, an experimental social psychologist. But beneath this story of sketch, there is a constant struggle. Uh, At one point, you know, there are constant critics and uh, people who are worried about the agency support of the social sciences. One board member says the social sciences are like Pandora's box, right? Mm. You wouldn't want to get near Pandora's box. Um, At at one point, Albert's assistant says that, you know, defending the social sciences at the agency is even an even harder task than Sisyphus had. Now, in a fascinating quiz I can only mention here, Albert himself had a much more complex view. He really... Rejected a narrow scientific approach and recognized the value of, quote, softer forms of research. But, you know, that's he didn't have room to support uh, his personal views uh, in the context of that difficult environment he found himself in at the NSF.
1: Albert's influence, speaking of which, and his post NSF writing after he left the agency uh, overlap in part uh, with your focus in Chapter three. Uh, which you titled uh, Help From Above, a Modest Flourishing During the Liberal High Tide, uh, 1957 to 1968. Uh, you note uh, some major changes in NSF social science under the leadership of uh, Henry Reiken, And he was, in fact, the first NFS social sciences division director Uh, When it was created, right, in 1961. Um, Can you unpack some of the significance of this era? Why did you call it, number one, help from above? And what were the primary factors that led to funding increases for the social sciences uh, during this period?
2: Yeah, well, hope from above. That was Sputnik. So, right, the Soviet launched Sputnik, the first artificial Earth satellite. This caused uh, sort of an uh, uproar or panic in U.S. federal science policy circles. You know, the Russians were getting ahead of us, or the Soviets, and the, the Cold War competition for advanced science and technology. And this provided the basis for increased funding, new agencies like uh, NASA. And basically, the story there is that rising federal science budgets made it easier for people to give the social sciences a little more funding, and then in the 1960s came the rise and the heyday of uh, reform liberalism. So this is sort of also happening at, you might say, the top of the political system, although it's supported by changes below, right? So during the Kennedy and, John- and then the Johnson administrations, there's the Great Society programs and the war on poverty um, and abroad. There's uh, the U.S. moves more aggressively to support uh, development programs in so-called underdeveloped countries or regions. Um, and counterinsurgency efforts to fight communism abroad, and all of those programs uh, were informed by and gave more space to the social sciences, right? So the social science experts were, they were sought out uh, to help understand and manage things like economic growth, inflation, unemployment, racial unrest, uh, poverty in the midst of plenty, as the phrase of the day had it, Um, and also a broad population control and uh, and left-wing insurgencies. And in this context, the question arose, um, even though federal funding for social science was increasing, was the government doing enough? Was it using social science adequately? And especially liberals, um, liberal Democrats usually, but some moderate Republicans, um, argued no. Um, So the social sciences were benefiting including the social science program at NSF, but it was also become, um, being criticized, sometimes fiercely, and you know, taking the language from the day social scientists and others portrayed the social sciences as victims of discrimination, as second-class citizens. Yeah, so that was helped from above, but it also created a new environment in which scrutiny of federal support for the social sciences intensified.
1: You have some quotes from some of the... Key figures uh, from the Manhattan Project who had previously had some the things they said about the social sciences. I think it was Edward Teller in particular, right?
2: Yeah, he, he said they were no more scientific than Christian science. right? Not not very flattering.
1: No, not, not exactly. Yeah. Well, I guess carrying on from, from there, the second rate status uh, of the social sciences had started to be more seriously questioned. As as you write to open your fourth chapter, and I quote, during the mid to late 1960s, the, the social sciences had considerable influence on major governmental policies and programs, from the war on poverty to the war in Vietnam. And your title is Two Challenges, Two Visions, the Daddario and Harris Proposals. Can you share with listeners the significant changes and striking continuities in the funding and status of the social sciences during these tumultuous years in American society and politics?
2: Yeah, sure Keith, Uh, and they were tumultuous as uh, we're constantly reminded in documentaries and books. So this was really a crucial historical juncture, right? I mean, global politics, but also just in American society and politics, including the sciences. And it was also the high tide of interest in the social sciences. And that supported these two proposals. Um, And, you know, two challenges, two visions is my effort to, you know, tell the readers right away, these were really very different proposals. And I emphasize this because it's been, this has been misunderstood in many historical accounts, which sort of like run the two proposals together as though they were rather similar. Um, So D'Addario was a Democrat in the House. He was a science policy expert connected to the scientific elite, um, but he had little experience with the social sciences. He puts forth a bill in 1965 to modify NSF's charter in ways that had two important implications for the social sciences. So the first is that you remember um, that the charter didn't originally mention the social sciences, and now he wants to write them into that, the NSF act explicitly, which was nice, but it was largely symbolic, right? Because NSF was already supporting social science. The other piece was more important, um, and that was he was going to modify the charter to include NF support for applied science, not just basic science. And this would include, include applied social science. And this really was a major change. However, when he was asked, well, you know, how do you imagine social science? Um, what role do you imagine social science playing at the NSF? He, he emphasized he wasn't really looking to rock the boat to shake things up. He wasn't asking for significantly more funding, representation or influence of the social sciences. He was looking for modest improvements, let's say. Harris, by contrast, he was uh, also a Democrat. He was a but he was a rising star among the liberal Democrats. He was also a science policy expert. He was known at the time as the senator for science and sometimes the senator for social science. He supported increased funding for social science at NSF, but he thought that that wasn't sufficient because, as I mentioned before, under Alpert's guidance, the NSF funding just emphasized the hardcore. It took a scientific approach, which was very limiting. So when Harris introduces his National Social Science Foundation bill, which I mentioned before, he, he does for the first time in 1966. This is a major proposal. He's calling for the creation of a new agency, one that would be dedicated to supporting and making better use of the social sciences. And Harris explicitly says that the full range of social research should be included. So you might think from soft to hard, including humanistic studies. There there were extensive hearings held on the National Social Science Foundation Bill in 1967. There was considerable support. The full Senate approved it. So it was a going possibility. But... Uh, hopes that it's for its passage quickly dwindled that the house never moved uh, on their proposal instead they passed the daddario bill then in 1968 nixon is elected a republican harris himself becomes more critical of uh centrist liberalism he becomes critical of the u.s role in vietnam he loses his chairmanship position so he really lost his platform support for supporting the national social science foundation so That idea lost its prime advocate. And as I suggested before, um, soon the whole proposal itself and discussion about it faded from view. And until the present day, we don't have a National Social Science Foundation in the U.S.
1: Professor Solovey, um, we still have much more to discuss about your research and latest book, Social Science for What? Battles over public funding for the other sciences at the National Science Foundation, published in 2020 by MIT Press. I think many readers uh, will agree with me that your larger narrative could make for some interesting Cold War political drama in the right screenwriter's hands. With that in mind, in part two of this interview, Uh, Professor Solovey will explain Project Camelot, one of the most fascinating stories of the 1960s American social science, a controversy over a military sponsored study that some called the Manhattan Project of the Social Sciences. Please join us for more Cold War social science history in part two. And thanks again for your time, Mark.
2: Yeah, thank you, Keith, and thanks to the listeners out there. And we'll pick up with a drama surrounding Project Camelot next time.
1: Sounds good.